There is nothing in the Constitution that talks explicitly about a right to education, but don't we all believe that such a right exists, that education at its best is a great door opener, it's an opportunity maker? The stakes are enormously high. And that perhaps is why questions about how to educate our children tend to set off some of the most emotional arguments we encounter in the public forum. Consider debates about school segregation, the Pledge of Allegiance, evolution, teachers' unions, and the one we are going to be looking at in this debate, charter schools. Those experiments first launched only 25 years ago that let schools run themselves independently while still spending taxpayer money. With the dream that such schools would innovate their way to new educational breakthroughs, benefiting especially underserved children and proving what works and what does not work. And the outcome of that experiment, has the dream paid off? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, charter schools are overrated. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two experts in this topic who will argue for and against the motion. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. And if all goes well, civil discourse will win as well. Let's have you vote right now as you come in off the street to tell us where you stand on this motion. Charter schools are overrated. Go to those keypads at your seats. If you agree with this motion, push number one. And if you disagree with it, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. You can ignore the other keys. They're not live. And if you make a mistake, just correct yourself, and the system will record your last vote. I'll give that a another 10 or 15 more seconds, and I will wait for eye contact from all of you to know that you're done. All right, I'm going to move forward. Our motion is this, charter schools are overrated. We have one team of two experts arguing in favor of the motion. Let's meet them. First, let's welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Gary Mirren. And hi, Gary. You are a professor in the College of Education at Western Michigan University. You evaluate charter schools for state education agencies around the country. And you have said, I'm quoting here now, that the charter school idea is one that you like. Now I'm not quoting you. I'm paraphrasing. But you are um, fairly critical of how it has actually played out over the last 25 years. So given that, would you consider sending your own kids to a charter school? I guess I would consider that. Uh, as a parent, I always have to look out for my children's best interest. As an evaluator, as a professor and academic, I have to look out for the best interests of all kids. So my wife and I, when it came time, we shopped around, and we ended up uh, enrolling our children in a magnet school. Okay. And can you tell us, please, Gary, who your partner is? Julian uh, Vasquez. Uh, Halek, he's, he's a professor, and he's uh, very tech-savvy, and he's Knows charter schools inside and out. If he's tech-savvy, that is fantastic. Welcome, Julian, to Intelligence Squared U.S. Um, And yes, Julian, you're a professor at Sacramento State uh, in education, leadership, and policy. You're a founding board member of the Network for Public Education. Um, We wanted to run this by you. The NAACP uh, recently took a stance calling for a moratorium on new charter schools, and there have been a lot of public hearings about that. You testified at one of them. Um, and both sides are heard in those debates, but did you have the sense being there that any minds were changed at the one you attended? 
That's a great question. Uh, this is the third resolution that the NAACP passed on charter schools in the last several years. And I think that this has elicited the most discussion, this most recent resolution. So I hope that uh, democracy moves forward, that this conversation moves forward. Maybe some minds will be changed. All right. Thanks very much. And again, the team arguing for the motion, charter schools are overrated. And we have a team arguing against the motion. First, let's welcome, please, Jeannie Allen. And Jeannie, you are CEO of the Center for Education Reform. Uh, Its mission is to expand educational opportunities for children uh, through innovation, freedom, and flexibility. You started the uh, the, the center back in 1993, um, a while back now, but what was the inspiration behind it? Thanks, John. Well, it was 10 years after Nation at Risk. Uh, We were still very much a nation at risk at that point, and I was in Washington, D.C., and was tired of the polarization, sound familiar, uh, on education issues. And I decided there were a whole bunch of people, in fact, millions of parents and teachers around the country that desperately wanted something different, and I wanted to pull all sides together and help them get it. Thanks very much, Jeannie. And tell us who your partner is. Gerard Robinson, a scholar, friend, and amazing advocate. Gerard, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. Gerard Robinson, you are also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and you've got some, uh, some experience here. You are a former commissioner of education for the state of Florida. You are a secretary of education for the Commonwealth of Virginia. You're a conservative. Your wife, who worked in the Department of Education under Clinton, is not a conservative. Um, now, charter schools, that doesn't always break down along party lines, those questions. So are you, is there bipartisanship in your house on this question? There's bipartisanship. My wife's a Democrat. She supports charters because she supports democracy. I'm a Republican. I support charters because I want to advance the republic. And it also shows that God has a sense of humor. <laughs> the team arguing against the motion. Charter schools are overrated. We go in three rounds. The first round, opening statements by each debater in turn. They are six minutes each. And here to make the first opening statement in support of the motion, please welcome to the lectern Gary Miron. You can make your way to the lectern, Gary. He's a professor in evaluation, measurement, and research in the College of Education at Western Michigan University. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Miron. Thank you. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. This is a great venue. I love the format for this debate, and the topic tonight is really critical, so I'm uh, especially pleased to be here. As John noted earlier, I actually I like charter schools. I like the idea. It's a good idea. Uh, when I look at legislation, most of it passed in, in the 1990s, we see common goals, common publicly established objectives for charter schools. The legislation says they're going to be small, locally run. They're going to be innovative and highly accountable. Charter schools and the legislation notes that they're going to be mission-driven. They're going to create new professional opportunities for teachers. After all, Al Shanker, uh, the president of the AFT at the time, was uh, a visionary uh, founder. He came up with uh, the idea of charter schools. So it was supposed to create uh, opportunities for teachers. So that was wonderful, too. Um, Charter schools were going to be public schools, the new form of public schools, a compromise from private vouchers. Uh, And... uh, of course, charter schools were going to lift the public school system by competition and by example. So this new form of public schools was going to help the overall system. So, I mean, I, 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 maybe I should sit on the other side of the stage. I'm very impressed with the idea. My, my problem comes, however, with what has happened in the last 25 years. 
I've done a lot of evaluations, and, and public schools today are overrated in large part because they are not fulfilling those publicly established goals. If we look at school size, charter schools are very big. Uh, they're growing every year in size. Uh, we have some charter schools that are over 10,000 students. One school in Ohio has more than 14,000 students. Uh, they're not locally run today. Many of them used to be locally run, but today increasingly they're, they're started by outside private companies, and that pro their proportion of the charter school market grows with every year. Uh, I want to talk, uh, jump over a couple points here, but in terms of innovation, charter schools are not I mean, some are innovative, but the systematic research has showed that charter schools on the whole have uh, innovations that in terms of nature and scale and scope are not different from traditional public schools. So on the whole, they're not innovative, although there are innovative public schools and, and uh, charter schools, and they should be commended. But uh, another objective was that they're going to... Um, that they're going to create new professional opportunities for teachers, and that has not happened, unfortunately. A very high teacher attrition rates. One study we had, 40% uh, of the new teachers coming into charter schools were leaving each year. That was a six-state study we did. Um, when we looked at the reasons, it was uh, teacher salaries, working conditions, and the teachers' perception that their schools were not able to fulfill the, their mission objectives or follow those missions. Uh, those are the main predictors for why teachers are leaving. Um, the biggest thing that we often see debated is uh, student achievement. Charter schools were not supposed to perform similarly. They were supposed to outperform traditional public schools. Why would we create another public school, a parallel school system that performed similarly? They were supposed to perform better. The evidence, and we, if we look at the body of evidence, there's over 80 rigorous studies of charter schools. Some are positive, some are negative in favor of charter schools. I've done nine of those studies, uh, two favored charter schools. I remember Jeannie Allen and Center for Education Reform praised, praised us for our quality research. And a couple of weeks later, we released our study on Pennsylvania. We were heavily criticized uh, by the same uh, organization because, uh, because of our findings. But we call them as we see them. But overall, across those 80 studies, we see that there's really no difference in performance. Uh, a lot of uh, talk has been made about uh, conveyed about this credo studies uh, out of Stanford. Uh, credo is a research center inside the Hoover Institution at Stanford. They've produced a number of studies. That the comparison groups and the methods are criticized on both sides of this uh, stage today. Uh, they've been criticized, and I have concerns about that. I guess the biggest concerns I have is when they try to equate these very small uh, effect sizes, sometimes favoring district schools, sometimes favoring charter schools, but they equate those to uh, days of instruction. And this is something our new Secretary of Education is, being, is doing right now, and that's, that's ludicrous. Um, the biggest study that out there right now, it's, uh, it's been done by Mathematica. It was commissioned by the Bush administration. We don't see charter a school advocates citing this study, largely because it's the most rigorous study to date, taking uh, students from uh, waiting list. These are the popular schools that volunteered and had large uh, waiting list. Uh, they were not normal charter schools. After tracking the students over multiple years, they found no significant differences between the two groups. On the whole, charter schools performed uh, similarly. One other uh, thing about charter schools is they were supposed to be public schools. Um, and this is something I do a lot of research on. Right now, we're working on the 15th edition of Education Management Organization Profiles. Today, we're looking at half, close to half of the nation's public charter school students are enrolled in privately operated charter schools. In my own state of Michigan, 90% of our charter schools are owned and operated by private entities. Uh, some are nonprofit in nature, some are for profit, most are 80% uh, are, are for profit. Uh, this is not, this was not anticipated, not, not anticipated at all. We're seeing charter schools today being bought and sold. How can you buy and sell a public school? 
um, this is something that's really happened in this reform. Uh, so this is one of my biggest concerns. I'm going to uh, touch on some of these uh, issues because I want to follow up on these publicly established goals. And it's kind of one of the themes I have. And, and, and Julian is going to talk about some of the key principles that are critical for the debate. Um, but just to sum things up, charter schools have not lived up to the ideal, and they're not pursuing those publicly established objectives. Um, I, I believe that the reform idea has been uh, really uh, taken from us by uh, private interest uh, pursuing ideological and profit, profit motives. I want my charter school reform back. It feels like somebody has stolen that from us. Uh, this is the reason I'm sitting on this side of the stage tonight, and this is why uh, one of the reasons why I'm particularly sad to say that uh, charter schools are overrated. Thank you, Gary Merrill. And that is the motion, charter schools are overrated. Our next debater will speak against the motion, Gerard Robinson. He is a re- you can make your way to the lectern, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former commissioner of education for the state of Florida. Ladies and gentlemen, Gerard Robinson. Thank you, John. Thank you, Gary. It's good to be back in New York. In 1995, I was in New York working full-time with a small nonprofit organization to help create a charter school. Now, put in context, the state of New York did not have a charter school law at the time. The state of New Jersey, where I had a chance to do work, did not have one. But what I had in mind is something that I took from California in 1993. California was the second state in the nation to have a charter law behind Minnesota. Those two states had one thing in common. They allowed school teachers to create public schools because school teachers themselves said, we've got to find a unique way of freeing ourselves so that we can have schools to teach kids, to raise achievement, and to experiment. When we talk about charter schools, we forget the fact that it was created and pushed by teachers. After you moved from California, then you had, you know, of course, Georgia and Massachusetts and other states. Then they allowed parents and nonprofits and others to create charter schools. But it was a parent-led movement. It was also bipartisan. Take a look at the founding in Minnesota. It was Republicans and Democrats and white liberals from certain parts of Minneapolis-St. Paul, urban black Democrats, who came together and said, listen, we've tried desegregation. We need to make uh, a lot of moves there. But for a set of reasons, it's not working for all kids. But they also realized that public school choice isn't about a public school monopoly. It's about having a public purpose for multiple kids. And they said, if we can empower teachers to create charters, then we should do so. Same thing in California. I speak to you about charter schools as a charter school founder. I was also a charter school authorizer. I can tell you that America's got some great charter schools, and we have horrible charter schools. We have charter schools that that should have never been opened. If they're bad charter schools, that is an accountability and an authorization problem, not a charter problem. If we have for-profit companies involved in charter schools and they're involved in malfeasance, that's financial malfeasance. That's not a problem with for-profit companies. That's a problem with what I call for-pimping, and for-pimping isn't for-profit. We have people in the charter school movement who are in this movement to make money. Guess what? Before you had charter schools, you have people in the public school system then and now making money. I got into this movement because I wanted to make sure that we advanced the republic. 1787 in this city, we decided to sign the Northwest Ordinance. 
And it's something we don't talk about often. And it said that religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary for good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Schools and the means of education. Schools are important and they take place in buildings. But the means of education is ubiquitous. It can take place in a building. And we have charter schools that are on the top floor of one school, bottom floor of another school. We have charter schools that have an entire school building. We have charter schools that are hybrid. Some classes are taking place in the school building. Some, in fact, are taking place online. We have charter schools that are also uh, totally virtual, the means of education. If you expect 50 million public school children in the United States who are in traditional public schools to get a great education, we should support it. If we support the 3 million kids who are in 6,900 charter schools, we should support it. Find a social movement in the last 25 years where ordinary people have been given public money to do extraordinary things. It's happening through the charter school movement. In this last presidential debate, charter schools, of course, uh, was part of the discussion. And there's a question about whether or not charter schools are going to destroy public education. 25 years later, we have charter schools in this city, and charter schools are thriving. Some well, some not so well. But I want to leave you with this. If you don't like public charter schools, then you must not like public school choice. Because if you like public, public school choice, you've got to like magnet schools. And magnet schools, in fact, preceded charter schools. If you like public school choice, then, of course, you have to like the specialty schools here in New York City, where you actually have to take tests to get in, where, in fact, you don't have to take tests to get into charter schools, where you have specialty schools that are for the gifted. But what about those who we found left behind? Charter schools are 25 years old. It's a step in the right direction to try to right the wrongs that we've had for centuries. It's March. This year, the U.S. Department of Education will turn 150 years old. It was a group of formerly enslaved Africans who walked off slave plantations in the South who helped to create the concept of free, a free universal public education. In the North, you had something somewhat similar. As we celebrate 150 years of what the Department of Education can do and the role it has played in advancing public school choice, let us make sure that we include charter schools as part of the conversation. It's not going to solve all the problems, but it's also not the biggest problem. It's not going to serve all of our children, but all of our children are already not served by public schools. But what it will do is keep schools and the means of education moving ahead. And as long as we do that, we will make the republic stronger, we'll make democracy better, but more importantly, we will guarantee that our children will have a better future than we will, because if you look at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development data, Germany and the United States are one of the two industrialized nations whose children may not do as well as we have. To let that happen would be to turn our back on our Constitution and the work we've done. Thank you. Thank you, Gerard Robinson. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, finding it out over this motion. Charter schools are overrated. You have heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Here to debate for the motion, Julian Vasquez Heilig. He's a professor of educational leadership and policy studies at California State University in Sacramento. Ladies and gentlemen, Julian Vasquez Heilig. 
Julian, I, I, I mispronounced your last name. I just want to get it right because it's the big moment. Because if you and, don't get it right, my daughter's going to notice. Yeah, so. and, and with the miracle of videotape and editing, that just never happens. Julian so, Vasquez. Heilig. I know. I knew. I just mispronounced it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, here is Julian Vasquez Heilig. So I think I'll know if my remarks are a success if these two young men in the front row don't yawn during my six minutes. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be watching you two. So first, I would like to thank and honor my family and the educators in my, uh, my career, my life, uh, for this opportunity. Gary began our debate by arguing that charter schools have evolved and departed from their original intent. I'd like to build upon this principal argument. Let me begin by telling you a little bit about my approach uh, that will complement Gary's prior remarks. First, I will discuss the success and problem in the American education system. Then, I will discuss what evidence should be considered to embrace the motion under debate that charters are overrated. There are now thousands of charter schools across the United States. While some are awful and many are average, some of them are great. So you're not going to hear us say tonight that every charter school is a problem, just as you're not going to hear Jeannie and Gerard say that every charter is perfect. You won't hear us say that every charter is imperfect. Even so, you will hear us say their charters are overrated and ask you to embrace the idea that charter schools are in need of reform. I'd like to first begin with the problem. The system of public education in the United States includes some places that are excelling and some that are struggling. Overall, the United States performs about the middle of the pack. However, there are some states that are knocking it out the park. For example, in math and science, there are only four countries in the world that perform better than Massachusetts. New York, New Jersey, there's only five countries in the world that perform better than those two states. The NAEP test, which is the so-called pulse of the nation's achievement, has shown that the children of today are smarter than they've ever been before. In fact, our graduation rates are now higher than they've ever been. Our public education system deserves some credit for making this happen. We've made real progress. The key problem in our country is the inequality the inequality between states, between districts, within schools, and within districts. Jeannie and, and Gerard have been very eloquent on this point over the years. Inequality as the status quo for poor children really is the shame of our nation. This is probably an area where we agree. Some have suggested that charters resolve these inequities that persist in our society, and that charters, as President Trump said yesterday, are civil rights. Donald Trump and his Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, have said that choice equals civil rights. Gerard, as Trump's presidential transition team on education, has made this point. Jeannie has also defended the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, for her approach to for-profit charters in Michigan as a civil rights remedy. In contrast, as noted recently by the civil rights organizations, the NAACP, the Journey for Justice, and the Movement for Black Lives, charter schools are far from a civil rights remedy. And let me make that case. Overall, their results mirror and in many cases underperform traditional schools. The public schools that Jeannie and Gerard have consistently denounced as failing. 
In fact, in some important ways, by using approaches that limit or deny access to some of our most vulnerable students, many charter schools undermine the civil rights causes. In fact, it's the opposite of democracy. So next, I'll take up the proposition that charters are a slam dunk for student achievement. And Gary spoke to this briefly. There are many wild claims out there about charter school performance. Many of them are rooted in what Credo does. In fact, Credo studies are not peer-reviewed. And if you look very carefully at them, if you point to the most recent studies, you find that, well, African Americans perform eight thousandths of a standard deviation. Latinos, five hundredths of a standard deviation. What does that mean? These numbers are larger than zero, but you need a microscope to see them. Contrast that outcome with policies such as pre-K and class size reduction, which are far more unequivocal measures for student success. They have 400 to 1,000 percent more statistical impact than charters. Thus, the performance of charter schools is overrated. And again, these are the best possible national results for charter supporters to point to. Our friends have previously discussed the right to have high-quality schools. We exist. We agree. In California, for example, however, the ACLU found that one-fifth of all schools had discriminatory policies, some requiring parent hours. If you could not volunteer those parent hours, then you can make a volunteer payment to that school. And so what happens is charters can do the choosing if we don't hold them accountable. In essence, if charters are allowed to implement exclusionary policies, they do the choosing instead of families. Furthermore, the charter industry often points to wait lists, but examinations of those wait lists show that they're unreliable and there's many duplications. In fact, I've been called from a charter wait list that I joined six or seven years ago, even recently. For these reasons, you should vote to support the notion that charter schools are overrated. By supporting this motion, You aren't saying that parents shouldn't have a choice or that charters should be closed immediately or that there aren't any charter schools that are excellent. In fact, Gerard himself has said that he does not, quote, believe charter schools are perfect or above reproach. So I submit to you, voting that charter schools are currently overrated will simply demonstrate that you are aware that charter schools are an education reform that needs more work. Thank you. Thank you, Julian Vasquez-Hyland. And the motion again, charter schools are overrated. And here is our final opening round debater speaking against the motion, Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie Allen. Thank you. Thank you, John. Are charter schools overrated? Are the arts overrated? Is project-based learning overrated? Is efficiency overrated? How about student achievement, individual student achievement? What if I told you the average cost-effectiveness advantage of charter schools was as much as 19 percentage points in reading and 17 percentage points in math on that very NAEP report that my colleague just referred to, and that based on that increase in NAEP scores in a charter school definitively on an objective test, we could actually save $1,000 per student that could go into that kind of pre-K healthcare, mental health and teacher support and educate more kids at the same time. Are those results overrated? I, 
I love quaint statements about how everything is great. I heard it all the time. Just today on the train, I heard someone say, but I like public schools, I like charter schools, but I had to move across the border from D.C. into Maryland to get a good school for my kids. Really? Well, is your choice is not overrated, but charter schools are overrated? Let me ask you another question. Is civil rights overrated? Wyatt T. Walker, Martin Luther King's aide-de-camp, helped to start New York City's first charter school, Suzulu Walker Charter School. Year after year after year, Suzulu Walker Charter School demonstrates growth above and beyond what any comparable kids attend in the area, year after year, have always beat that growth. Is fixing what's broken and expanding what works overrated? Wyatt T. Walker said if Martin Luther King Jr. were alive today, he would support charter schools. Should we sacrifice the millions of lives that went ahead of us to make sure that children who are most in need, who need the equity that my partner talked about earlier, don't get that equity simply because we have this nostalgic version of that school that we all experienced? We often forget the deficiencies in the schools we attended. We get older, or those our kids attended. Classes too big, too small, nerds, people who didn't seem to care about us, people who cared too much, Bueller. (laughs) Our talents are overlooked, underutilized, mismatched. I'm not good in science. I'm not good in history. Why do I have to be in a big class? Why do I have to be in a small class? Not enough music, too little indoors, books that make no sense. Testing, testing, testing discrimination. Are parents overrated? Think about it. Three million students in charter schools today. 26 years now we're entering with charter schools. That means something like 20 million choices have been made since 1991 alone. Grandparents, foster parents, black, white, brown, liberal, conservative, nothing, poor, are all of their opinions, are all of their ideas overrated? Parents vote with their feet. They're surveyed year after year, and their support surpasses 80%. And yet, those students in the schools where those kids came from are on waiting lists because they want to follow too. Why? It's not because we need to actually count on these average, huge studies like we're hearing about. There's actually no such thing as a study that will tell you that all charter schools do this way or all charter schools do that way. In fact... States like New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts don't have better test scores or assessments than every other state. They have higher income parents, better educated, and when we put those better educated, higher income families and their their students of those families in a data set for researchers to look at, they get all combined and squashed with all the poor, black, brown, Latino, and working class folks that actually ends up lifting them. But when you disaggregate that data, something we've been able to do for the last 12 years, you see a much different picture. You don't see growth with those upper middle class, those more advantaged kids, those working poor. You don't see them, regardless of color, getting better and better. You actually see the proficiency of the best performing students in America going down, And yet, at the same time, unless you have a choice to get out of a failing school system, like that in Philadelphia, that graduates in four years 3% of African-American males, 
while boys' Latin charter school graduates in four years, I'm sorry, college graduation, 50% of males, unless you pull them out, those kids don't stand a chance. Our system is broken, not our people. Is learning overrated? No, no, and no. Students go to charter schools not because it's one amorphous big thing or institution, but for the very purpose and reason that they started to begin with. It started with diversity, not doing better, choices over diverse learning environments because all of our kids learn differently, require differently. Gary, if you actually really believe that you were part of the charter school reform movement, I'm sorry, but I never saw you at our meetings. Okay? And if you really believe that it's gone awry, you must not have been paying attention to the purpose of charter schools. It was for individual parent options because we know our kids better than anyone else. And it was for educators to provide those options. And that is why charter schools are not only overrated, they are a majority better than any other institution we've had. They've lifted all boats, made all public schools better, and you are absolutely wrong. Vote no, they are not overrated. Thank you, Jeannie Allen. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is charter schools are overrated. Now uh, we move on to round two. And in round two, um, and I, I want to say one thing, because, Jeannie, you came a little bit close to it. Our, the spirit of our discourse here discourages personal attacks. And um, it certainly adds a little bit of zest. But it puts Gary in the position, Gary in the position now of having to respond to that. And then we end up talking about Gary's record and your record as opposed to the issue. So, I apologize. No, you don't have, I, all right, thank you. Thank you for that. So we want to... I want, you to, I want you to let it go, okay? Okay. Can, can we all do that? All right. Thank you. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in New York City at the Kaufman Music Center. The motion is charter schools are overrated. We heard the team arguing for this motion, Gary Miron and Julian Vasquez-Heilig, uh, saying that... Uh, they were a good idea, charter schools were a good idea, but that they have gone off the rails dramatically, that they have not lived up to their main purpose, which was to innovate, uh, to give teachers the chances to teach in ways that they actually wanted that would be uh, energizing for them, that in the end um, they find that too, too many schools are being taken over by private interests, that inequality in certain communities is actually echoed in the schools themselves in that sense that they undermine human rights. The team arguing against the motion and in that sense supporting charter schools by saying that they're not overrated, um, they concede, by the way, as their opponents do, that there are good charter schools and bad charter schools, but that they say that the purpose of charter schools, their main purpose was to give parents options, and on that score they absolutely uh, have lived up to their main goal they cite the fact that parents are voting with their feet by taking their kids in increasing numbers into charter schools with citing 80% support in, uh, in, in polls that indicate the parents are getting what they want out of it. So they're citing the, the virtue of choice um, and the virtue of a parent-led movement that they say is also bipartisan. So um, we're going we're gonna to peel some of this apart. I think it's going to be a little bit challenging for all of us on the issues of school performance because the studies are 
both sides are saying the studies are all over the place, but we, we do want to look at those and discuss those to some degree uh, as we can and as much as we can understand them. But I, for, before we get to the data, I want to take to the side arguing for the motion your opponent's main argument that the schools were founded, first of all, they say that their main purpose was to give parents a choice, and they say that parents are getting to exercise that choice. Therefore, there is success on those, that ground. So, yeah, it is a fact that more and more people are going, choosing to go to charter schools than they were 25 years ago. Every year it's more and more. What does that say that parents are, 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 are asking for charter schools? I'll take you to you first, Jillian. Okay. Well, in New Orleans, the only choice is charter schools because there they've decided that in the recovery school district that there's going to be um, all charters. And so, yeah, so if you look at the numbers, you're going to see that the number of students attending charter schools is more. But if you look at the data, and we wrote a policy brief on this, I went to folks in New Orleans and in Louisiana, and I said, give me the data on what you're seeing there. And New Orleans and uh, Louisiana writ large are last and nearly last in every single education outcome. And they've had 10 years and got everything they wanted. Charter schools, Teacher America, vouchers, you name it. They got it there. And New Orleans and Louisiana are last and nearly last in all the education outcomes. So just because something is growing doesn't necessarily mean it's good. But, Unless it's the, my muscles working out. At the but but, I, but, but I, I still, I, I'm still left with the question about other places, that in the large sense that there seems to be a, a, a dash for charter schools where they can be open and there are waiting lists, et cetera, all of which seems to su- suggest that there is a big demand uh, na- nationally. And, and, and then I'll let you answer that, Gary, and then we'll go to the other side. John, the demand, yeah, there's a demand and their numbers are growing. Today there's close to 3 million uh, students in charter schools in our country. But when we look at student attrition data, like especially in the virtual charter schools, there's phenomenal attrition. And uh, these companies just, instead of improving the quality of the schools, they pour m- more money into recruiting and, and convincing families to come in. Um, there's high attrition rates. In terms of waiting lists, there's, I've, I've done nine evaluations, statewide evaluations of charter schools. These waiting lists, they're not audited. That's, there's, no, there's no valid measure. And often, these, these, the lists aren't uh, – so are the lists don't actually exist. Are you schools. saying that the demand is somewhat whipped up by, by manipulation of the public attitudes and that the waiting lists are perhaps false? They're unsubstantiated claims. And the first part about the, the – I think – I just want to understand. Are you saying that is, the demand is, is somewhat – there's, there's a high demand for them, but there's a high rate of uh, children exiting actually, charter schools. Okay, let's take it back. They're to actually the not unsubstantiated. You actually have to produce data uh, at every school to show who you have chosen from so that you can be held accountable publicly. What, what is unsubstantiated, unfortunately, is state data. State education departments are famous for not knowing how to actually collect data, so when you get it, it's highly inaccurate. Um, which is one of the problems, which is why we have ineffective school systems, is unfortunately state education departments have been, has been in charge. But I just really want to correct a couple of things, too. First of all, the charter schools that started in New Orleans started after Katrina. There were no schools. There were no boards. There were no, there were no people. And the first schools that could open up were schools that were independent, charter public schools. They said, we will help set them up. And they were set up because charter operators from across the country said they were willing to set up schools sight unseen without a promise of money to get those kids into school. Kip went to Houston, put kids in cots. They'd wake up in the morning, they'd teach them. There's a whole different story there. And what disturbs me is the discussion and the debate, with all due respect, is about lacking context and data. Um, We heard that uh, half the charter school operators 
half the kids in the country go to charter schools that are for profit. That's completely false. There's data to prove that. Um, Who we said heard, that? I don't, I don't know. Who's data? Gary said that. We, Gary we said put that. out a report. We're on our 15th edition. We, we document Gary, the list of all totally, the schools. Your definition of for profit is wrong, and the way you define data is wrong. We heard there's a charter school. <laughs> it is. They're completely. I can show well, you. Let me, I can let me, make those. Let me, no, but Jeannie, but let me, he also said Jeannie, there's a charter school that has 10,000 kids, and that's not true. Charters often have 100 schools. Contracts are not schools, and that's the difference. So you're, right. you're misleading. Gary, I'll let you respond. I mean, a charter school size. I mean, ECOT charter school is a single charter school in, in Ohio. 14, 000, more than 14,000 students. They've had more than 18,000 students at one point in time. I mean, this is, this is publicly available data. What kind of school data. is that? It's an online virtual school. Are they in school. a room? Okay, so they're not in a room. School to people. Uh, it's an online virtual yeah. school. Yeah, so they have people all over the state. It's very profitable. Gerard? Approximately 15% of the charter schools of the country are actually managed by for-profit companies. They're called EMOs, education management organizations. There are states where the majority or near majority are, in fact, operated by for-profit companies. But let's remember, before you had charter school laws, public schools like New York City and like New Orleans already contracted with for-profit companies. The buses that your kids ride on, likely for-profit. Public schools that, for a host of reasons, can't serve all special needs students will contract out those services. services. You've had the private sector involved in public education for many years. And there's a role for that because there are times where the public sector cannot or chooses not to provide that service. I mean, is there a trend towards privatization and private control of education? Yes, we agree. And that's, where, and that's where this actually conversation started, was when they decided that they were going to privatize buses, that they were going to privatize food services. Now they've decided that they want to privatize our schools, the entire deal. So I, I think that that's, that's, yes, I agree with you. There is a slow roll towards privatization and private control of our school. I don't think he said that. That's, again, it's a, it's a distortion. What Gerard said is only 15%. It could be more. And who cares what the tax status of a company is if our kids are learning? Well, here, Let's think about this. So here's, here's why. And, and, those, and those thousands of kids that used to have to wait on lines and still do to get into success academy schools because New York City couldn't figure it out after $20,000 so, per Julian, child. Julian. So we're at a, a watershed moment for education. We have a Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, who believes in the private control and privatization of education. In Michigan, as Gary talked about, more than 80% of those schools, and if you look at the credo studies, even if you don't believe them, let's just set aside all the problems, they have a negative impact on students in that state. And there's a negative impact, I'll say it again, of charter schools on students in the state of Michigan. Uh, They have the lowest transparency and accountability standards in that state also. So the question is, do we want to see Betsy DeVos's vision for the entire United States? Uh, the New York Times reported on this and said that in Detroit, there's no good choice. You know, in 1991, I'm sorry. If there's a slow roll to privatization, it's, let's take a look at your teacher pensions. Most of you who are teachers and principals will retire with a good pension because your investments are, in fact, invested in for-profit private-making or, or profit-making adventures. Just take a look at that. If you're against privatization on the school side, I'm not sure how you're against privatization when you're going to retire from that market. 
So I'd also like to give some context to, um, to Detroit and other places and go back to data and states, because there's something a lot of people don't quite realize when you talk about context. Um, there is no one set of data or stats that tell us where every single person and every single student was and is after a certain amount of time. What you have to do is you actually have to pull that data out, analyze it, and make sure that you're accounting for every single variable. Where does the state get its data from? School districts or authorizers of charters. When school districts report data, some of it's two years behind, some of it's just hand-coded and inaccurate. So do you these are not, these are not, well, my point is, yeah. my point is data is not the issue. We have studies. We can talk about the studies. We've got studies that show 15% learning gains so what is in Washington, D.C. what is the issue? The issue is whether or not these schools are working for students through a variety of the same kinds of multiple measures that educators are clamoring okay. for today. Let me let Gary respond directly to that. Yeah, there's, there's data. Data is all over the place. You can say different things. You can torture it. It'll confess to a lot of things. Um, <laughs> we... we, we I think the big issue tonight, and I think it's a little bit of an uh, unfortunate matchup, is that we have two academics on this side and we have two people representing advocacy groups. Your job descriptions require You're you coming to close to the personal yeah. oh, attack. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, but let me talk about just us. Just, uh, I've looked at the data. I, I have to look at all the data, and I've done these comprehensive yeah, evaluations. So we, I've, visited, I've, I've visited yeah. more than 700 charter schools. Uh, in my state evaluations, we've collected the data, and it, 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 uh, we don't. We produce the reports, and you selectively consume them. Well, it's a very big. But, but, but you know, but you know, and and, and um, your your pedigree aside, the data is not the issue, and that's what I want to go to. Detroit was falling apart in 1991. I was in Detroit in 1991. Detroit's issues have nothing to do with the fact that charter schools showed up. Detroit was an issue because like Baltimore now, like so many cities, Chicago right now, we have not yet allowed families, educators, and students to have schools that are personally tailored to their needs. We have bureaucracies that control the rules. We have states that control the rules. We have union contracts that tie the hands of the greatest educators and make them want to leave. And that's why they go and start these charter schools. Okay. So Detroit kids were actually benefited from, char- benefited from charter schools, and those that didn't want to stay around left. Julian. So, you know, really, I, 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 I'm not sitting here saying that we should do nothing to help Latino and African-American kids. A professor in, at, at Cal State that came to us from the University of Michigan showed that depending on which side of eight mile you lived on was what kind of school you were going to get. And the thing is that that's on purpose. Unfortunately, our society has decided that poor children are going to get a lesser education. And it's the inequality that's built into the system. And when you have a friend, you're having a conversation with a friend, and they, want, they don't want to talk about what you want to talk about. What do they do? They change the subject. And that's really what's happening here is that we're talking about charter schools when we should be talking about the inequality. And what we should also be talking about is how charter schools exacerbate the inequality that we see in schools. Okay, I want to take – that, in fact, was the point that I wanted to move on to. Gerard, I'd like you to respond – and you, you heard uh, that Julian touched on this in his opening comment as well – the argument that charter schools echo and in some cases enhance the inequality. 
So two points. One, I, I don't have a Ph.D. like those guys, but I am literate, and I can actually decipher data. When I was in Florida and both Virginia, I had an opportunity to work with PhDs, had to go through their data, not only look at charter schools, but private and public. So that's part one. Uh, Part two, you can't boil the ocean to cook an egg. If the argument's going to be that inequality we must fix first before we challenge or attack charter schools, you're in for a very long ride. What I think we should do... What I think we should do is use the conjunction and... While we're fixing our public school systems to address inequality, let's also use charter schools to do the same thing. Julian. And I actually agree with that statement, but let me add to it. And we must fix charter schools, make sure they're transparent, make sure they're accountable. Until such a time, they are overrated. So I, 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 uh, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm wondering well, what, what, about, what about say, that? Actually, that's, that's, that dropped nicely. I am absolutely going to answer that. Okay. I'm, I don't believe that there are some bad charter schools, some good charter schools, and some average. That's a quote that came from the New York Times in 2009 after the first Credo study, and people have used it and repeated it like it was conventional wisdom. And it's hogwash. 90% of the charter schools in the country are working for kids. The 10% that don't are already on the watch list or in order of being closed. So... We're not, you don't need to fix charter schools any more than we have to fix academics. We have to allow the options that are making those equitable opportunities help kids. You're worried about equity? Let's talk about equity. Wait, 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 wait. I just want to break in because I I don't, I think he made a point that you, to my ear, you didn't exactly address. And the, the point was there are good and bad, but until it's all much better, in the performance of charter schools across the board, they are therefore overrated. The charter schools are not overrated because they are serving parents and students' needs by choice. What we should be Why concerned- is choice the game changer? Why is choice the key? You man, what's the, what, what would we like better? You open your door and you are zoned to your traditional public school because of your zip code. There's nothing more inequitable than that versus you allow a parent to make a decision among institutions that are not only highly transparent, charter schools are micromanaged to death in ways that you cannot okay, find before you, before, in a traditional school. Before you get school. onto that, I, I want okay. to take the point that you dropped nicely, that choice is, is a virtue in itself for the reason you just laid out, and I want to let Gary Miron respond to that. Can you paraphrase that again? It wasn't really I, a virtue so in itself. The point up. is you're allowed to, you're leaving to help your student get an education that you feel best helps them, and that institution, it's not just no, a but you're, you're, choice. You said it's a charter, schools are not choice. charter schools are not overrated right? because right? they embody choice. No, charter schools are not overrated because parents are permitted, as opposed to being zoned to schools that we already know are failing, to make a choice for their students okay. Okay. in a publicly and accountable institution. You can't just cut it off there. Okay, Gary. There's many forms of school choice. A magnet schools, there's a, within district school choice, inter, intra-district school choice programs that with, with that, that maintain the governance structure means that uh, the public is still going to have more transparency, transparency and control. My big concern with the charter school choice option is that it's become a vehicle for privatization, less transparency, and it's been a vehicle that's accelerated uh, segregation are by race, class, and working? Are those magnet schools working? They are. Yeah, how, how do we the know The studies that? are working really? better. They're, they're working they're, better. They're, because they're choosing the kids who go there. Uh, they, they can, they can use quotas so they can uh, provide right. voluntary integration right. by race 
in, in class. Gerard. So if you're looking for transparency, uh, take a look at the state of California. Julie is a professor at Sac- well, Sacramento State. I took a look at their numbers. 2016, 2017, 35 charter schools in that state closed and identified exactly why they closed. In the fiscal year right now, there's nearly seven that have closed. You go to a Department of Education, and they say we're going to close a school, either driven by the authorizer or a number of factors. Those schools close. They tell you why, academic malfeasance or financial. How many public schools have you seen close because students didn't do as well? If they close, they may be under enrollment. Julian. So, so I'm glad you brought it to California. I want to make two, two points about this. I mean, first, you want to ask the communities of color about what they think about charter schools opening and closing in the middle of the school year at the, you know, whenever uh, it's decided that they want to close and fold up shop. I, I think it, that's something that we really have to struggle with, which is that, is that the best thing for us? Yes, 7-Elevens open and close, but as the center of a community, do we really want charter schools opening and closing? How, how, how typical is that of the overall charter There's school experience? Tw- I think 2,300 charter schools have closed the last 10 years. Versus, don't, don't versus, quote me on that number, but I think it's about okay, that. Okay, we, we won't hold you to that, but versus how many have, have continued to operate and open in the meantime? Well, I think there's more than 7,000, 8,000 charter schools now. 6,700. 6, yeah. Okay, so does, why do you use that statistic to suggest that they're overrated? Well, the because idea... Because isn't the point of these schools to be experimental in one sense? And if the experiment fails, then they shut down. That's the deal. So, so the idea is that this is a market-based approach. Vote with your feet, right? Now, the idea is that the idea is that we can just willy-nilly open and close schools. But these schools, we're talking about families. We're talking about communities. Um, and so the question is, are there? And that's not really the point here today. But there are other alternatives. I don't think any of us are against parents being able to choose. And I'll speak to that in my closing remarks. But there's one other thing that I want to talk about with transparency and accountability. Do you think it's reasonable for us to know what the teacher attrition rate is in charter schools in California? Do you think it's reasonable for us to know what the discipline rates are in California? Well, the California charter school lobby does not want us to know that information about the schools that we're paying for. And to me, that's transparency and accountability. Gerard. We talk about charter schools as if the 25-year sentence, there has been no growth. Take 2017. When you submit your application to a charter school authorizer, most of them are local school boards. Some are states, some are universities. Some of them now include the application. In case you have to close, what is your contingency plan? I agree with you. We don't want to throw students out in the snow. I guess we're in New York, the snow, versus California, Southern California. Those things are tough. But we've actually matured in how we think about how to use laws and processes. So there's, there's things in place. We're still learning across the process. But remember, this is 25 year. This is a 25 year learning curve. We're still on a learning curve with traditional schools too. Gary Miron, would would you support a a do you, do you can you imagine a functioning charter school model and system that's existing in all states and that you're all in favor of? I think let's go back to the legislative intent. It's beautiful. I like the idea. Small, innovative, locally run, not run by for-profit or non-profit corporations outside the state. We have some of our charter schools being run outside of our country where the headquarters are for those companies. What's That's an example the, of that? Uh, here, in, here in Manhattan, uh, Kunskopskolen. It's the corporate headquarters is in Sweden. Uh, Sabia or Sabis, 
another school with uh, headquarters in the Middle East. Okay, is that problematic to the side? It's not true. It's not true. Okay. People start, they're international people. We're going to talk about immigration now. If people from all over the world create opportunities for kids. Sabas actually is a leader in the Middle East, and it actually runs pri- ran private schools here. It was invited to open up a charter school in Springfield in the early part of the Massachusetts Not Charter School, run. and it does an amazing job for students. They actually have a U.S. headquarters. But that's not even so, – so this is really interesting, right? So we've now heard that there's this, this privatized – let's go back to the original – Ted Caldery, who is the original author of the Massachusetts Minnesota Charter School Law, who is the god – we call him the godfather. He talks – Talks about in a it. good it was way? Diverse. I mean, yes, a good way. He's, not he's, in that. Huh? He's not that part of my people. Okay? It is about, it was not just locally controlled. It was educators entering into contracts, thus charters, to create opportunities for students to be have their needs best addressed with parents making choices under a high standard run by and publicly accountable to states and taxpayers. Now, how do we know that that happens day in and day out in Washington, D.C., New York City, yes, Michigan, Arizona, because where we have studies like the one Bob Rosencrantz mentioned upon opening, apples to apples, randomized control trial studies, we know what works. So that's those studies plus financial okay. transparency. But, but I just want to say one more thing. Those are the studies that we don't have nationwide, and those are not the studies that my, are the opponents of charters on the right of us are talking about. Julian. I was, it was difficult for me to follow that, but <laughs> I... Uh, I, I yes, yeah, please. I can repeat it. Yeah. Would you like to repeat Studies and Let's look at the body of research. I've spent a lot of time with my doc students looking at, at the body of research. The smaller, uh, smaller studies, case studies, tend to be more favorable towards charter schools. The larger scale studies tend to have uh, mixed findings or negative findings. The studies that are funded by federal or state education agencies tend to be negative. The studies funded by the advocacy groups, they tend to be positive. I mean, it's, it's a lot of research out there, but when we look at the research, we have to look at the, the, the scope of all the research. And overall, charter schools are overrated. All right, I want to go to audience questions. Um, I'll come right down here to the front uh, in the third row. And you're second, from, second in from the aisle. If you could stand up. And when you uh, ask a question, here are, my, here are my requirements. I'd like you to tell us your name, at least your first name. If you're blogging or writing for an, uh, a public organization, newspaper, or website, please let us know who you're with. And um, I don't want you to vent, um, and I would really like you to ask a question that is really clearly a question, and a question mark fits at the end of whatever you say naturally. <laughs> that so would can, be it. can the panelists have um, rules, too, like no hard questions? Can we do that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Phil. I'm unaffiliated, I guess. Okay. Uh, <laughs> don't be scared. My, my question's for the side um, against the motion, and it's so out of the the 7,000-ish experiments that have come out of the various charter schools, apart from, I guess, adding more capitalism, what specific um, results from those experiments or techniques could be ported over to public education to improve that and add to What a great question. Like, what are, what are some of the innovations that have come out of the... Sure. Who would like to take that, uh, Gerard or Jeannie? Jeannie. I, I will say just three to go quickly. Um, there have been uh, tremendous innovations in experiential and project-based learning that those schools have taken from the earliest days and have Could been ported over. Could you unpack that a little bit? What is that? 
It means you actually change the way the classroom is structured because you don't have to account for a certain amount of seat time in the class, and you have freedom from curriculum. So you can say, in the case of New Country Day School in Minnesota, you're going to go in the water for half of the day. You're going to explore what's there. You're going to come back. You're going to put it into beakers. You're going to look in under microscopes, that kind of experiential learning. Much more started in charter schools ported over. Um, Some of the first non-public Montessori's were charter schools, and they were copied by districts. Uh, the way teachers are paid or, or, or retained and rewarded was very much performance-based pay. was not on the table, folks, until charter schools came along. Do you, the other can, side can answer if you'd like, um, to, I'd like to. So if, just allow me to question the premise, which is that if I work for Banana Republic and I walk into Zara, do I expect Zara to roll out the red carpet for me? And so charters are based on competition. They're competing with each other and with public schools. So the very idea that somehow the original vision of Al Shanker and others, that we were going to share and be innovative, runs contrary to the current conversation about how charters should function as competitors and as a market. And yet when we talk about specialty public schools in New York City, do we say they're competing with the public schools? Do we say the same thing about magnet schools, about theme-based schools, about science schools? Public schools are diverse because we don't educate all our kids the same way. So for me, the schools are the means of fair education should ever be encouraged, and charter schools are a part of that. In the very last row, um, if you could stand up and maybe come out to the aisle so that the camera can find you. Thanks. Actually, you don't, you don't need to. You're, 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 just hand the microphone in. I apologize for that. Hi, my name is Pamela, and I'm a teacher with the New York City Department of Education. Magnet schools, when they accept children, they accept them from every level when people apply. Charter schools have been known to not take ESL children, bilingual children, special needs children, special ed children. So, of course... When you look at the statistics... I I need you to get to a question. Okay. So my question is, when you look at all of this, how do you stand behind the fact that charter schools are not discriminatory? Thank you. Question to the side again. The Department of Education has identified that nearly 10% of the students in charter school are, in fact, students with special needs, about nine for traditional schools. English learners, about 8% maybe 9 or 10. So there's some differences there. So to say that they don't is absolutely untrue. I opened a school, and in fact, I know they're in there. And I've I've seen that data, Number two, uh, May of last year, the Department of Justice, along with education, released a report where they took a look at magnet schools. We currently have magnet schools and desegregation schools. We have to remember that, in fact, magnet schools do not take all schools, students. Some of them have tests to get in, which discriminates against students. Some of them have racial quotas still because they were created in the 1970s in part to bring white families into schools in order to desegregate. So we've got the pros and cons on both sides, but to make a blanket statement like that is simply untrue. So, Julian. So I just, um, I just published a piece in the Stanford Law and Policy Review about this very issue. Actually, if you look at statewide data, oftentimes if you eyeball it, 
traditional public schools and charter schools, they, they often look fairly similar in the percentages. So what we did was is we used geospatial analysis, used the data for the entire state of Texas, and drilled down. And what we found out was that just exactly what you said, audience member, that special ed kids, ELL kids, they were less likely statistically to be enrolled in charter schools. So check that piece out, Stanford Law and Policy Review. Down on the right here, and the mic's going to come down from uh, behind you. Thanks. Hi, my name is Lindsay, um, and my question, I guess, is for both sides um, of the argument. And that is, as you look at the growth and proliferation of charter schools, what effect do you think that's had on public schools, and like traditional public schools in this Thank country? You. I'll take it first to the side, arguing for, yep. uh, for the motion, uh, Gary Marin. We've uh, studied that in many of our state evaluations. Uh, one of the first things that we see is a loss of money, in part because districts start to advertise and market uh, their schools more in response to charter schools. Overall, when we see in some uh, urban areas like Detroit, which is recognized by many academics as a poster child for failed school reform, we see devastating impacts, uh, negative impacts on char- uh, for the district schools. They're losing a lot of students and money, and they have fixed costs with infrastructure, for example, but also what they're finding is many students are coming back after the headcounts, and most states are still using a headcount, the fourth Friday headcount, as a way to allocate funding, and many students are coming back after that, having a devastating impact financially on the districts. The districts also end up having more concentration concentrated populations of the students with severe and moderate moderate disabilities and also children with disciplinary problems because many of these kids are are suspended and suspended and suspended and pushed out of the charter schools and back. The district schools have to take students at any time of the year. Charter schools often don't take them in the middle of the year because they don't have to. And why would they do that? They're disruptive to bring in a new student, and the money often doesn't follow the students. So it has a very negative impact on on district schools, an impact we don't see uh, resulting from magnet schools. Well, well, the money does follow, and most states pay their charter schools monthly. So if they were really those money grubbers you're talking about, they'd be taking them. But that's really not the issue. It's a great question. Look, these are all really critical issues. We don't have all the answers, but we do know on this particular area with the amazing job the charter schools have had in actually transforming the way our traditional public schools do business, not because the people inside, like our friend the New York City Department of Education, were sitting around, they weren't doing a great job by themselves, but because what you have seen is the ability to help unlock and unleash the potential for students to learn and educators to get involved in that learning. In Washington, D.C., 47% of the kids in charter schools, that has had a dramatic impact on increased achievement through every single kind of school in D.C. Economic climate's gone up. Communities are safer. You see that in Boston, Massachusetts. You see it in in Phoenix, Arizona. There is no question that this small, comparably small set of charter schools over 26 years, has jumps, re-jumped, exactly as intended to do, traditional public education such that people started coming back and private school enrollment started going down. That is good news, particularly when it affects okay. student achievement, too. Gary, you, I saw you shaking your head, but do you have something new to say on that particular point? We have a, a question comes in from Twitter from uh, somebody named Matt Barnum, who I'm told uh, is a writer on education policy. He asks this question, what do we on the panel make of studies showing that virtual charters um, lead to huge drops in test scores. Um, Gary, first of all, define virtual charter for us. Uh, Virtual, uh, they basically take all their instruction online. And uh, the 
the message is correct, and I've done a lot of research on this. And even the charter school establishment has joined us and our research uh, to really point out that these charter schools are really out of, out of line. The performance of these schools is outrageous. The student attrition rates are out of hand. K-12 Incorporated, the largest uh, operator, they themselves say that uh, two-thirds of the students don't last two years. Um, so it's it's... I believe in virtual schools, and I believe in these blended learning schools, and they're going to be the future. Um, I'm very concerned about the model, the corporate model that's being used right now with incredibly high student-to-teacher ratios when they really should be using all their cost advantages to have lower student-to-teacher ratios. These students are, are really, they often, young kids don't have the metacognitive skills to self-regulate. They need Adults in these schools are funded Gerard, in a way that they could support those students. Gerard, do you dispute that, or are you? With that? There are definitely some uh, students in virtual charter schools that are doing well, and there are some. Uh, in fact, uh, Richmond Public Schools uh, recently cre- actually created a contract with K-12 uh, Education headquartered in Virginia because they're going to provide services that the public school itself could not do. So there's some good, but Richmond thinks it's going to work for them. Okay. And K-12 Inc. in California well, has more dropouts than graduates. And would you, wouldn't you start a virtual that. charter school if you could write yourself a $10 million check as CEO? Do you know, you know, you know it's interesting. It's, when we talk about this stuff in the abstract, it just sounds so easy to just, um, to just kill it, right? It just sounds so awful. Do you know what it takes for a kid who has been bullied to wake up every day and go to school? Do you know who goes to online and virtual charter schools? For some kids, they're exceptional. They cannot get the education they need in those schools. For some kids, they are so behind and so besought by what happens. You know, for us to sit here and condemn someone in an online charter school because a couple of very narrow reports, and oh, by the way, there happens to be a company behind it, is just, is just so reprehensible on so many levels. Many districts provide virtual education. What we're disputing okay, vir- is that a for-profit corporation should run virtual let them respond. Sorry, wait, wait. Everybody was talking at the same time. I know, but you had, you'd been going for... I, I, no, I know. I, no, no. I'm, that's not. That's not meant at all as a diss. I, we just want to have a sense of everybody having but a I fair amount of time. Okay. We don't condemn those children, and I think there's a place for uh, virtual, full-time virtual schools for a small portion of the children at some part of their career. What we do condemn is that they're being put in these schools, sold on these uh, fantastic uh, claims on Nickelodeon Network, on, on the Vampire Network, uh, where they advertise heavily, and, and they're put into class. Gary. They're put into classrooms with 120 students. Go ahead. Uh, that's not right. Uh, Gary, just... haven't actually worked with real superintendents who actually contract not only with K-12, but nonprofit organizations who provide online learning. These are people who dedicated their career to helping advance public education, and they see for-profit and nonprofit virtual providers as part of the solution. We're not interested in vampires. We're interested in geniuses. <laughs> Sir, let's ask a question. Hi. My, uh, my question is... It's good. I, uh, my question is to this side uh, against the motion... Does the uh, charter school model require that public schools still exist? I guess, in other words, if public schools cease to exist, how would charter schools account for the very worst students or students of parents who can't or won't look out for their best interest? Can you tell me your name? Nathan. Would you mind, just for our recording so we can edit, just introduce yourself as Nathan? I know it feels odd, but go for it. Nobody laughing? Okay, go ahead. Hi, my name's Nathan. Wow, that was take two. No. 
Every state constitution has an education clause. The education clause says that you must provide a public, free, universal education to children before they're emancipated. It could be age 18 or 16. I don't see public education going away. Uh, there are 50 million kids in there today. Three million students are in charter schools. I don't see it going away because there's always going to be a need for public education. I don't think it's got to be a one-size-fits-all public education. If there's anything to go away, hopefully it's the mindset that there's only one way to deliver public education. Gary or Julian? Gary. It's an interesting question. I think I want to take it a little bit to the side, but... When we look at these companies, many of them are look like they have fantastic records. KIPP schools and, and success academies here in, in New York City. Um, we should look at why aren't these, if these are such great ideas, why aren't these schools, and many of them have, have considered, and KIPP has tried, but to, to take over uh, districts. We've had Detroit Public Schools and other districts have put out requests for proposals inviting these uh, miracle companies to come and serve public school students in their schools where they have the same enrollment policies in the same catchment areas and where they have to take all kids that are there, even those that come in the middle of the school year. KIPP schools tried it in Colorado. After two years, they failed, and they'll never open another district school. They're only going to do charter schools because the model allows them to have selective entry and exit processes and benefit from that. Well, well what about this claim of selective entry? Yeah, that's, that's not how uh, charter schools work, and that's not why they choose to have a charter school. They choose to have a charter school because they can apply their model in a charter free from rules and regulations that require you to use particular products, teach at certain times. Do you know that most union contracts forbid a teacher from actually taking on additional responsibility? So the reason they won't do a district school is because districts require you to follow their rules. The district system is broken. The idea that there can be one management company, you want to talk about a company, it's a company, a management organization that is full of individuals who have been unfortunately having to follow rules and regulations over time that many of them have had nothing to do with. And when they do well, it's because they will fully admit they creatively non-complied. All right, Julian, hang on just one second. I want, need to say this. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Charter schools are overrated. Julian. So when Albert Schenker first envisioned charter schools, the idea was that they would be more democratic. They'd be teacher-run. They would be community-run. Well, five or six years later, he became disenchanted with the idea of charter schools because what had happened was is nonprofit and for-profit corporations had come in to run the schools. Charter schools, if they don't have public accountability, direct public accountability, are anti-democratic. So saying that publicly elected school boards and districts and unions, which are also democratic organizations, are uh, an old idea. I don't think democracy is an old idea. In fact, I think we need excessive democracy when it comes to our thinking about education reform. We need to avoid education reform that is top-down and concentrates power in the hands of just a few people. I agree we need you. to focus on community-based solutions. I have a question for Gary. Uh, Gary, this, this claim of your claim of selective entry, you know, the understanding is the laws always say that the schools can't select, and if, if there's a waiting list, there's a lottery, and a lottery is totally blind. Yeah. Why, why are you making this claim of selective entry? How is that supposed to work? Well, uh, there's many ways that charter schools can select. Uh, le- legally, they cannot. Charter schools are supposed to be open to all, but we see the way in they 
the way and where, manner in which they market themselves. Uh, we see it in the way sometimes they have long admissions uh, processes where students have to write essays or do campus visits or they have to go to events at golf clubs. Um, there's a number of things that they can do. What do you mean they have to go to an event at a golf club? Well, that's one of the examples that came up in a recent study uh, where, where they were supposed to come to some meeting. Uh, you, mean, you mean that the information meeting was held at a inform- golf course? Yeah. Or at a golf club Correct. room? Yeah. So there's a number of things that can happen. These requirements for volunteering, which some families cannot do. In some states, uh, their um, charter schools are not required to do transportation, and they don't provide transportation because it invites more single-parent families uh, and also low-income families. Okay, so, I, so these I, are just... I wanted to see what you were talking about in that regard. Um, just real, uh, real quickly about democracy. There's nothing more democratic than parents actually being participating directly in the education of their children. And I think one of the really interesting things, there's a group that actually trains charter boards. They're charter board training on a regular basis. And they make the point that it's so great to have a board that actually doesn't have to run for office, which is political. So a charter board, it's, it's a nonprofit. Charter schools are nonprofits. If any of you know or have been part of or run nonprofits, you are accountable for all the data, paperwork, you're accountable legally for following laws, and you sign your name. You review the tax returns. Okay, okay I, I want to break in because I'm trying to explore this point that your opponent's okay. making about selective right, entry will, through, through subtle sort of nuanced sure, ways. Gerard, sure. do you want to take it? Well, one part is if you decide that you want to participate in inter-district choice, and you decide to go outside of your zone school, there's some states that don't, that don't provide transportation. So it's both public and charter. Are there charter schools that have rigged the system to select the kids they want? Absolutely. Well, let's also talk about the public schools. Uh, USA Today identified that between 2010 and 2014, 83, 83 public school systems actually counseled out some of their worst-to-serve students in order to raise their scores and do something else. There are also public schools who coach kids out and who coach kids in. It's not a charter public school problem. Okay. It's just a problem with adults behaving inappropriately with young people. Okay. All right. Let's take a question down here on the aisle. Hi, I'm Bradley. Um, with the recent developments in charter schools uh, for the uh, argument against the resolution, do you believe that charter schools are a vehicle for school vouchers in the future? Ooh, good one. Actually, it's uh, really not relevant to the question of whether they're overrated. It's a great question, and we may do a debate on it at some point, but I'm going to pass in the interest of time and stay on topic. But thank you for the question. In the very back there. Hi, I'm Chris. I'm a teacher at Blair Academy, boarding school in New Jersey. Um, what's the role of for-profit schools, particularly in charter schools? What's the role of what? For-profit schools. What do you mean by that? Uh, I, I, schools that operate to make a profit. But what do you mean what, when you say what's the role? I, I, I know. Uh, so there are for-profit schools that operate charters. Right. It, what I, do you I'm think a, about I, that? I think we've kind of been bouncing around that topic, so I'm going to move on as well. Thanks. And on the right there, the aisle with the paper up. That's a great way to get my attention. Hold up the card. I, I go to shiny objects. Uh, a question for Gerard. A question for. Can you tell us your name? I don't need it. A question for Gerard. No, we, we need it for. Or, or we, yeah. the people listening outside can't hear you. Um, What's your name, please? Teacher. And Gerard, do you have any you're, studies? You're given. <laughs> boy, what if you were from Zephyr Teachout's family? That would be odd. <laughs> okay, if you don't want to give your name, that's fine. Um, but but hold any, the mic yeah? so we. Okay. That's good. Thanks. 
Do you have any studies that you're content to cite that talk about how in New, excuse me about the number of teachers or students that switch between types of schools that go from a charter to a public or vice versa? And any studies or data about the students go from charter who go from charter schools to public schools for summer school? For the first question, I don't know much of those. The only one that comes to mind is University of Arkansas, uh, either Jay Green or what's likely Jay Green, not Pat Wolf, who's done some of the, that study. Second one, no. I, I want to let the other side take that question as well. Yeah, in terms of teacher attrition, we know that uh, some of the states are tracking that. In Delaware, they saw that many of the students, uh, I'm sorry, many of the teachers were actually moving on to tr- traditional public schools, but also um, they also tracked a number of teachers leaving the profession. But the attrition rates were between 20 and 30 percent annually in charter schools across the six-state study that we did, but for new teachers, it was 40 percent. Uh, when it gets to students, it's harder to track that. Some state auditors have been going in, especially with these virtual charter schools. In Colorado, uh, the state auditor found that in uh, one of the large virtual schools operated by K-12, 50% of the students had turned over, gone back to traditional public schools or homeschooling within the school year. And that's between September and June, when most students uh, actually, if they're going to change schools, do it between school years. So there's quite a bit of student attrition, but only some state audit reports have focused on virtual schools. I'm not familiar with other studies. If it's of interest, even if we had that data, which that data really is not valid, does not exist in any comprehensive way to make sense of, I want to just remind people that we need to have, we need to focus on students. If teachers are, are, are leaving schools rapidly, if they're leaving every other day, and students are there, and they're learning, and there are adults who are validating that learning and publicly accountable, why are we talking about whether or not a teacher is coming and going, even if it were the case? Sir, down the third row, and if you can stand up, and the mic's coming down the aisle behind you, and if you could tell us your name. Uh, My name is Brian. I was actually a charter school teacher in Newark, New Jersey. I now teach in a public school in Morristown, New Jersey. My question is, um, what is the data in terms of schools focus on college and career readiness? To what degree uh, are charter school students, compared to public schools, attending college and completing college? Thanks for that question. Let me take it first to the side. uh, Gerard or Jeannie would like to take it. Public schools versus traditional public schools versus charters. Um, They're they're just beginning to report out because we've got a generation of charter school students. Once again, I go back to you've got to look at city by city. You can't even look at state by state. And so the graduation rates for Philadelphia, for example, public charter schools surpass those of the Philadelphia school system in terms of race and income levels. We have the same data in Washington, D.C. So I would argue that in order to get that answer, you need to look at schools, you need to look at the city, and then you need to look at the state. And the state data is going to be, I think, still a long ways away because of the same reasons we've been talking about. And a response from the other side, if you'd like to? That data is not valid. Just kidding. Um, so uh, we published a piece in the uh, <laughs> um, 
we published a piece in the Berkeley Review of Education. We looked at all the data for the state of Texas. Texas has lots of data. And so what we found, a lot of charter change will tell you 100% of our kids go to college. You've probably heard this, right? So we took a look at a very prominent charter chain. I won't put them on blast here. We have mentioned it today. And uh, only 60% of their kids, their African-American kids, uh, lasted to the senior year. But they still say that 100% of black kids go to college. But that really is 100% of 60%, which in my stats class is not 100%. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is charter schools are overrated. And now we move on to round three, and in round three, the debaters each make a closing statement in turn. They will be two minutes each. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, charter schools are overrated, Gary Miron, a professor at Western Michigan University. Thanks, John. I had two different closings. I don't know which to take. I thought I'd wait and see how the debate went, but um, I think I'll take this one here. So, <laughs> charter schools are overrated for the reasons that we said, that they, they're not living up to their publicly established goals. Um, but they're, they're, they are achieving two other key outcomes. Uh, one is that they're accelerating resegregation by race and ethnicity, by, by economic class, by special education status, by ability, by English language status, and even as we look at the research, even by religious groupings, because uh, that's surprising to me, but we have a lot of religious-oriented charter schools. They're not supposed to teach religion during the day, but we have Islamic schools, we have Christian schools, we have a couple networks of Hebrew schools. Um, so we're really segregating. Our, our, our schools are accelerating segregation that already exists, unfortunately. But right now, in my own lifetime, this is a critical time. Probably more than ever, we need a public school system to reduce social tensions. We need children to be more integrated, more exposed to children with diff- different backgrounds. When they're exposed to children with different backgrounds, they're, they're going to be less likely to be biased towards them, and they're going to be less likely to believe uh, claims by, by leaders uh, demonizing minorities or religious groups. So I think right now public education is really important and we cannot afford to accelerate segregation further. Um, this is a market-oriented reform. It's going to result in winners and losers. And our urban schools, our, our children in poverty, they need a solution. We cannot afford winners and losers. We need a solution that lifts all schools and lifts all kids. And right now, the evidence is suggesting that charter schools uh, are having a negative impact on the districts uh, in which they're located. And um, the outcomes, as we see, they're, they largely perform similarly at best. We're dividing limited resources across two struggling, often failing school systems in our urban areas. We need a better solution to lift our urban schools and address the issues of poverty. Thank you, Gary Mary. The motion, again, charter schools are overrated. And here, making his closing statement against the motion, Gerard Robinson, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So charter schools aren't overrated. What's overrated are the scare tactics used to try to make people believe that we're destroying children's lives. If you want to listen to Gary and Julian are great researchers, I would also add that you should look at Carol Hoxby, that you should look at Jay Green and uh, Pat Wolf, Mike McShane, and also Nat Malkus, who's at my institution. Reading from the right and from the left, maybe somewhere we'll find sense in the middle. Ultimately, when I talk to parents, and I've done this since 1993, they're not interested in the right wing or the left wing. What they're interested in are schools that work. And what we need to make sure that we do is to provide that forum. For the charter schools that aren't working well, we should close them. For those of you who are authorizers, you already know all the metrics. 
you know a bad charter school when you see one, never let it open. For those of you who believe in public choice, that is the American way, giving people an opportunity to choose magnet, charter, virtual, and otherwise. The reality is 25 years from now, we'll have the same conversation. Some of us in this room won't be here. I mean, be one of the ones that are not here. But what I can say is that when I had an opportunity to stand on the right side of history, I did so because charter schools are advancing the idea of what it means to be a republic and what it means to support democracy. I will be glad to say for my three daughters and at some point grandchildren that when I had an opportunity to be unpopular, I decided to be unpopular because I took a chance on something called charter schools, an idea for regular people to take public money and do extraordinary things. For-profit isn't for-pimping. Private institutions are a part of our uh, segment, a part of our, actually, a part of our nation. I will close with this. It's easy to theorize about what you would do with other people's children when you're sitting in the laps of luxury. Having actually lived with people who are concerned about their future, charter schools are an approach, and for that reason, they're not overrated. Thank you, George Robinson. And that is the motion. Charter schools are overrated. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Julian Vasquez-Heilig, a professor at Sacramento State. Unfortunately, in most forms, the conversations about charter schools are often reduced to simple sloganeering. So thank you to our opponents, the moderator, and our audience for such an engaging conversation. So I have a confession to make. I'm a former charter school educator, parent, board member, donor, and volunteer. I first became involved with charter schools when I volunteered at a Minnesota charter in the 1990s, soon after they were first began. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, I worked as a 21st century learning program instructor in a Bay Area charter school, essentially a teacher's aide. I've also donated to charter schools. In fact, they still send me fundraising letters. I also serve on the board and was a parent of, on a Texas charter school. But I am a scholar. We are convinced by evidence. It's our sacred duty to society. So my perspective on charter schools changed when I began to research them and engage with data beyond those with which I had had direct and personal experience. So I submit to you that we allow ourselves the space in our national discussion and in this debate tonight to change our mind about charter schools. We have talked this evening about many points in the debate about charter schools, but there's one major point of agreement. Poor students in the United States have less opportunity for a high-quality education than those in wealthy areas. So we must not, must not do nothing, because African Americans and Latinos and other poor students continue to be underserved on purpose. But the motion tonight is about whether charter schools, as an education reform, are overrated. Considering the evidence that I believe we presented to you tonight, I proffer the audience should embrace the motion and vote that charters are a reform that needs reform. Thank you. Thank you, Julian Vasquez-Hiley. Once again, the motion is charter schools are overrated. And here to make her closing statement against the motion, Jeannie Allen, CEO of the Center for Education Reform. I think controversy in the spirit of doing what's right for our kids is never a bad thing. And so I thank Gary and Julian. I vehemently disagree with your position. 
but I respect your passion, your integrity, and your commitment, and I will work every day of my life to change your minds. (laughs) I wake up every day, and all we have done is spend time in and around education, trying to understand and evaluate what works. I don't have a busy teaching load, although I do have a master's from the University of Pennsylvania. I employ scholars. We have colleagues around the country that we are constantly working with. These issues we are talking about is what we are obsessed with 24-7, much to the chagrin of my family. Across the country, people like myself, thousands that are literally part of an effort to understand and push for whatever it takes to get kids in the best schools that meet their needs. And if data works, great. And if those schools work, fine. But we cannot stop thinking that we have the answer until everyone is educated. I don't know the charter environment that you've heard my colleagues over here talk about. I've never seen this charter environment they've described. There's bad apples everywhere, sure, but there's there's not this environment of of craziness and and irresponsibility as if it's some some outrageous thing happening. The charter environment I've seen has Native American kids learning for the first time in their lives in Arizona. It has dropouts that went back to school by the droves in Minnesota. It has students who couldn't make it in a traditional school learning online. And yes, it has suburban moms in places like Colorado who had been going to private schools because the public schools would not help them. These and millions of other data points is what makes up the charter movement. There's so much more to be done, and that's why they are not overrated. Thank you, Jeannie Allen. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is charter schools are overrated. And now it's time to learn which side you feel is argued the best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat. And as you did before, please vote on the motion. Now, one thing I want to explain is the way we declare victory in our debates, it's the difference between the two votes. Whoever goes up the most in percentage points from the first vote to the second vote will be declared our winner. Once again, push number one, if you support the motion, you're with this team. Number two, if you're with this team, you're against the motion. Number three, if you remain or became undecided. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, uh, may I have your attention, please? Um, I, I, uh, I so appreciated what Jeannie said at the end of the debate, because normally what I do is I talk about how the debate went in terms of meeting our goals of trying to raise the level of public discourse. And the thing that you said, Jeannie, was, I'm going to argue with you, but I'm going to try to change your mind. That's what debate is about. It's about persuasion. It's about proving points, not just making assertions. It's about having respect, the kind of respect for your opponents that you just demonstrated. Uh, All four of you did that tonight, and I congratulate you for the spirit in which you did this. I I also want to share that eight and a half years ago, I was sitting in my office at ABC News, and I got a phone call from a former colleague named Dana Wolf, who used to be a producer at ABC. And she asked me if I would be interested in moderating a debate at something called Intelligence Squared U.S., 
Um, that was uh, the best phone call I think I ever got, and, um, and the decision to come over and start doing these debates was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I am so pr- pleased and proud to be associated with this kind of enterprise and the thing that we just saw tonight. The reason I'm talking about all this is because Dana Wolf is leaving us after producing 133 debates, and we just want to acknowledge that by embarrassing the hell out of her and bringing her up to the stage. Come on up, Dana Wolf. So, um, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Bob Rosencrantz has something for you. And I, I just want to say that it's uh, a little bit miraculous. Dana was given uh, a directive back in 2006, make something almost out of nothing. Here's a little bit of money, figure it out. None of this existed. The ideas of how we structure it, the motions, our culture, our look, it just didn't exist. And it all came into being because of Dana, uh, who came in um, those 133 debates ago. And they've, well, actually, I have three questions. You can either say something or I'm going to ask you three short questions to get you off the stage. Choose. Ask the questions. Come up to the microphone. Question number one, did you ever imagine that it would come to this? To 133, no, not in my wildest dreams. (laughs) Question number two. Um, again, thanks to you, we started traveling around the country. We do most of our debates in New York, but we've been in Chicago. We've been in Boston. We've been in Philadelphia. We've been in Aspen. We've been in Los Angeles. Which audience is the best audience? <laughs> this New York audience. Question, question number three. Who's the best debate moderator that... That would be John Donvan. You didn't have to say that. Dana, thank you from all of us, all of the people behind the curtain um, who you brought in, created an amazing, an amazingly small and efficient team, an amazing team, and I am so pleased that you got me associated with this. Bob is as well. So thank you, Dana Wolf. I want to say one more thing. We do this as a philanthropy. I know that you paid to get in here and bought your tickets, but the ticket prices do not cover nearly the cost of what we do. And when we produce these debates, I've talked about the podcast and the radio broadcast. We put that out to the world for free. And, in fact, we not only have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of listeners to our podcast, but we are now involved with many, many schools who make us part of their curriculum. I've been traveling around the country in association with my book, and I keep running into people who say they're big fans of Intelligence Squared, and they know about it because it's in their classroom. And we're exceedingly proud of that. But we need your support, and we appreciate it. Uh, and tonight, we've, um, div- I'm announcing that there's a real way now to, uh, to donate to us, uh, and that is to use your phone and text the word DEBATE. This is really simple. Text the word debate, and you'll get a link to donate online. And and you text the word debate to the code 797979, and you know what that means. It 
it doesn't mean anything, but, but it's, it's easy to remember. So we would appreciate it. I would, I would love to see some activity happening in the seats even now of fumbling for your phones. Text debate to 797979. All right, so we're going to wait for the results of the vote to come out. I think we're ready. Yeah. La La Land, yes. Okay. All right, so I want to remind you again, uh, it's the difference between the first vote and the second vote that makes the difference. And the other thing I want to remind you of is that in a certain sense, the vote is not the most important thing. It's very audience-dependent. Different crowds would vote different ways. But this is how this crowd voted tonight. In the first vote, on the motion, charter schools are overrated. In the first vote, 33% agreed with the motion, 31% disagreed, and 36% were undecided. A three-way split almost. Those are the first results. Let's look at the second result. In the second result, the team arguing for the motion, charter schools are overrated. They went from 33% up to 54%. That means they picked up 21 percentage points, which is now the number to beat. The team voting, arguing against the motion, their first vote was 31 percent. Their second vote, they went up to 40 percent, but that's 9 percent, not enough to win. The team arguing for the motion, charter schools are overrated. Our winners, congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everyone.